Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome. Um, I'm Professor Anna-Marie Jagos, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. I really um, welcome you this evening to the University of Sydney and this panel event, co-curated by Sydney Ideas, the Laureate Research Program in International History and the Nation Empire Globe Research Cluster. I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Their ancestral lands stretch from South Head at the entrance to Sydney Harbour to Petersham, an inner west suburb about four kilometres from here, up Parramatta Road. It's upon the Gadigal people's ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. This evening, as we come together to think newly, I hope, about civil war as a concept, we pause to acknowledge the historic violences perpetrated on Indigenous peoples under the very different affordances of colonialism and nationalism, and acknowledge, too, histories of Indigenous resilience. Tonight, we pay respect to the knowledges embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I just want to say a couple of words about the um, groups behind this event um, before handing over to a more lively emceeing. Uh, uh, Professor Glenda Sluger, um, a historian from the Department of Sydney, it's her laureate research program in international history, um, which brings together a crack team of postdoctoral and junior research fellows and is bent on advancing our understanding of the international and internationalist origins of the global present, as well as regenerating public debates on globalisation. Along with that research program, we have the Nation Empire Globe Research Cluster, an interdisciplinary group based in the Department of History here at the University of Sydney. Active now for well over a decade, it focuses its historical studies, as its name succinctly suggests, on nationalism, imperialism and globalisation. So it makes pretty good sense, I think, that this triangulated partnership would host the visit of Professor David Armitage, the Lloyd C. Blankfein Professor of History at Harvard University, and most recently, author of Civil Wars, A History and Ideas, published this year by Yale University Press, and I think possibly available for sale at the back of the, the lecture theatre. A, a, a rumour or a truth? A truth. Okay, a historical truth. Historical and present truth. Um, in conversation with David and energised by his ideas, we have this evening a curated panel of five additional scholars, mostly historians, um, but leavened by the presence of a lawyer and a philosopher. Uh, I'm going to hand over to Glenda to introduce. She, she was talking to us uh, earlier in her office, uh, suggesting a rather sophisticated sort of methodology for the order in which speakers would occur. But she then did say we could also go boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, I think. Thank you, Anna Marie, and thanks for introducing me, so I don't need to do that. Um, it was, I've just checked the fact, the historical fact. It was 2008 at a Sydney Ideas event over at the Seymour Centre. I don't know, was anyone there? When David Armitage first tried out his idea about a book on civil wars, in fact. I remember that, and maybe you can find it in the podcast, in the archive of uh, Sydney Ideas. I'm too scared to look, because I think we'll all look a bit younger. <laughs> uh, we may even have dreamt of a different world. 
certainly one in which civil wars seemed least, less threatening, perhaps, uh, in the West at least, than they might do these days. And you know, I've, I've marked quite a lot of David's book up. I'm looking forward to the discussion of this panel. And uh, in particular because I think he makes such a pressing case for why history matters. So what I'm going to do now is to get us going and straight into the panel more or less, is introduce the speakers in reverse order. They're going to speak for approximately eight minutes each and then we're going to have some Q&A. So in ascending order and abbreviated form, Professor David Armitage is the Lloyd C. Blankfein Professor of History at Harvard University where he teaches intellectual and international history. He holds affiliated positions at Harvard Law School, the Department of Government at Harvard University, and at the University of Sydney, where he is Honorary Professor of History. So he'll be speaking last. Then Professor, uh, well before him, Professor Ben Saul, Chalice Chair of International Law at the University of Sydney, and Associate Fellow of Chatham House at the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London. And next year he's going to be the Guff Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser Visiting Professor of Australian Studies at Harvard. The uh, third speaker is going to be Martia Abenhaus, Associate Professor in History at the University of Auckland, who publishes widely on European uh, internationalism and wars. Uh, then Professor Andrew Fitzmaurice, Professor of History at the University of Sydney, where he teaches and publishes on the history of ideas. The second speaker will be Dr Eleanor Cowan, lecturer in Roman history at the University of Sydney. And our first speaker is Professor Duncan Iverson, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and otherwise one of our favourite professors of political philosophy at the University of Sydney. Uh, we've got quite a lot of breadth here. And it's because there's so much breadth in the book, so we're trying to match up some of the themes with the, uh, with the expertise here at the University of Sydney. So I'm going to hand over now to our first commentator, Professor Ivanson. Thank you. Thanks, Glenda. I've never been introduced as anyone's favourite anything, so that's very impressive. First, first thing to notice, so I bought my edition of David's book in Toronto, uh, and you'll notice a very subtle difference from other copies of my book. There's a drop of blood from the sword, which you won't find on Australian and other copies. And it's a very un-Canadian thing to do, but who knows why they did it. So, so, this, so um, I've got eight minutes, and it's an absolutely extraordinary book, and it's a great honor to be able to say a few things about it. And I want to begin boringly with a philosopher's quibble. Um, David in the book suggests that philosophers and political science scientists are seduced by the desire to fix the meaning of concepts and conceptions, and therefore miss the intensely contextual and contested nature of our, not just the application of our concepts, but of the concepts themselves. Social and scientific and philosophical precision, he says, are doomed. So I am doomed before I even begin. And I agree, to a certain extent, the excavation uh, uh, of the concept of civil war in the book is an absolute, absolute tour de force. But of course, it's the daily bread of political philosophers to focus precisely on the elements to which he is referring, grappling with the consequences and the genealogies of our concepts and how we use them today. Now, it's a core underlying thesis of David's book that civil war is what philosophers call an essentially contested concept about, as he nicely puts it, the essential, uh, the, the essential elements of contestation. Now, this is a philosophical claim, not an historical claim. Um, it's about the existence of a distinct category of concepts that are subject to a particular form of ferocious contestation. 
Now, perhaps he believes that all of our concepts that really matter in politics are by definition essentially contested. But that would be a very strong claim, a very strong claim indeed. It can lead perhaps to the mire of relativism. But a concept can be essentially contestable, but also one in which we still think there are some interpretations that are better than others and maybe one that might be, in fact, the best of all. And indeed, by the end of the book, if you haven't read the book in the penultimate chapter, David gives us a lovely, deft excavation of a number of interpretive stabs to try and fix the meaning of civil war, but really leads us to a much more expansive conception. So I think my first comment is one premise of the book is false. So the second thing I wanted to say, though, was really focus on what I think is so... Um, wonderful about the book and wonderful about the way in which the concept of civil war is deployed. And that is to think about its opposite, its conceptual opposite, which is the state. So in one way to read this book is to read about uh, an extraordinary history of the conception of our state. And this is because when we think about civil war in political theory, we're thinking about what the British philosopher Bernard Williams called the first political question in political philosophy. That is, securing of order, protection, safety, and trust, and the conditions of cooperation. We need to solve those first before we can do a range of other things. Now, this is essentially a, a point that Thomas Hobbes made, because for Hobbes, the state provides the solution to all those problems of, of, of civil order and, and, and civil disquiet. And it's a solution that is required all of the time, and therefore is subject to all kinds of changes in historical circumstance. And more than one set of political arrangements can, can solve that problem. But it's also important, especially in the liberal tradition, that the state not itself become part of the problem for which it was created to help solve. That it shouldn't itself undermine the conditions required for order and trust and cooperation. So one thing that David is doing in telling us about the history of civil war is telling us about the history of various ways of thinking about the nature of the state. And, and the extent to which we are ever able to remove ourselves from a precarious position of tipping back into civil war all too easily. And in fact, I think this is one of the most moving things about Hobbes's political theory in general, strange as that might sound. Civil society is desperately, intensely fragile. And a history of civil war teaches us this lesson in more ways than one. So much of our beliefs about civil society are just that, beliefs that create the architecture for the sustainability of civil society over time. Citizens are in part defined by the beliefs they hold about the appropriate end that the state is created. And David's genealogy of civil war shows the extent to which that can become fissured and broken in all kinds of terrible ways. So, one thing I think the book teaches us is the extent to which our beliefs about civil society matter and our beliefs about the state matter and the extent to which the changing conceptions of civil war also reflect necessarily on our changing conceptions of the state. So to conclude, I just want to raise one more variation on this theme and it, it has to do with a, a, a relatively underdeveloped theme that David picks up on in the work of, of, of Michel Foucault who famously, or maybe not so famously, thought a lot about civil war in his lectures on political theory towards the end of his life. And for Foucault, civil war was not somehow eclipsed by the age of revolution and, and the enlightenment, but rather remains at its heart. 
And he turned around that famous dictum by Clausewitz, who said that you know, war is the continuation of politics by other means, which Foucault said was, in fact, politics is the continuation of civil war. His point was that more and more, the state, through the civil, is acting in often violent ways through forms of disciplinary and governmental power. And this adds yet another challenge to our contemporary political theory of the state. It's another element now that we have to think about and theorize about. And so at the end of the book, David talks about this concept of global civil war, which now emerges as a kind of flip side of cosmopolitan justice as a response to the rise of nationalism and the state-centric nature of so much political theory. And that seems to mean that we'll need a new kind of political architecture to deal with that kind of global phenomenon, not just the global phenomena of cosmopolitan justice, but now the phenomena of global civil war. What kind of architecture do we need to address this new global now phenomena of civil war? Human rights might be undoubtedly one element of that architecture, but as David's book suggests, will, are radically insufficient to the task. So the history of global civil war requires now a history of our so far failed attempts at creating the conditions for a truly global civil society. I'll stop there. Thank you very much for the opportunity to, to speak. It's a real honour to have the opportunity to um, be here talking about um, this really stimulating, stimulating book. And, and look, I come at this from the perspective of a Roman historian. Um, but I wanted just to begin my eight minutes uh, by acknowledging again and reiterating um, what our Dean has said, that the land that we stand on is itself um, subject to a history of conflict, which we have in fact struggled to define. So thank you for the opportunity to speak. It's actually not often the case that a historian of Rome finds herself in a position in which a Roman intellectual tradition is attributed primacy over a Greek one. The invention of civil war is a kind of dubious honour to claim uh, on the part of the Romans, and yet, as Professor Armitage has shown in his timely and, and, as I say, really stimulating study of civil war, both in its lived experience and in thinking and theorising about that experience, Civil war has profoundly shaped our history and our capacity to understand and make sense of that history and our understanding of the place in which we find ourselves in a present characterised by civil conflict. What I propose to do in my eight minutes uh, is really to focus on one tiny section of the thesis as it intersects with my own area of expertise and in particular to focus on the Republican moment at which um, our surviving evidence first attests the term bellum QLA. I say first to test this term in order to, to re-echo David's own note of caution here. I do think we need to distinguish quite carefully between the first attestation of a term and its first use. We really have lost so much. Civil wars contributed, the book suggests, three enduring and uh, in, enduringly influential narratives. So the Roman civil wars come up with three enduring narratives. A republican narrative in which civil wars were perpetual and inevitable within the civic community, so integral indeed that they became symptomatic of what it meant to be civilised. An imperial narrative of the first century CE, which differed to the extent that the invention and enduring success of the Principate came to represent the end of civil war. And finally, uh, an early Christian narrative uh, in which civil war was adduced as evidence that a community was dedicated to the things of the world rather than the glory of God and was consequently on a path to self-destruction. 
In the time that I have, I really want to concentrate on the first of those narratives. And I want to start with the Cicero passage, which forms the earliest attested use of this phrase. So in advocating for the law granting extraordinary powers to Pompey the Great to fight against Mithridates in the East, Cicero lists civil war as amongst a kind of catalogue of types of war which Pompey has shown himself adept and successful in pursuing. The speech takes place some 22 years after Sulla's march on Rome and before the breakdown of relations between Caesar and Pompey which led to the civil wars of 49. One of the intellectual hot topics of this day um, turned on the question of empire. What was the right relationship of, for Rome to have with her empire and what were the key responsibilities that Rome owed to the peoples of empire? From this debate, there would emerge a powerful narrative in Roman historiography about the metus hostilis, the fear of the enemy, and the effect of this fear on the behaviour of the Romans at home. This was a really powerful narrative and one that would have an ongoing influence on writers like Livy and Lucan in the future. When Rome was at war, the narrative went, there was peace at home because people came together, saw a need to come together for a common end. But when Rome had conquered her enemies, dissension broke out in the city and old divisions between elites and non-elites, patricians and plebeians, senators and plebs reasserted themselves. Cicero termed these wars bellum domesticum, and in one instance at least, he sought to distinguish between bellum domesticum and bellum quiwile. Elsewhere, Cicero is kind of less clear in the distinctions that he makes, but he does talk about bellum intestinum ac domesticum. So the term bellum intestinum, a war that kind of gets into the very guts of the community, also gained a kind of currency at this period, and so far as we can tell. So we do... I think very much find ourselves in a space in which language is being tested or played with, experimented upon, in order to try to understand and explain discord within the Roman community. Reading David's account, I was struck in a way by two additional things, which, if I may, it seems to me that the Roman experience of civil war has contributed to the history of that concept. The first is that for the Romans, civil war was acutely marked and shaped not only by the horror of brother fighting against brother or attacks on the city itself, but by contests around language and key ideas. In the period of the Roman civil wars, our surviving sources attest fundamental contests over the political lexicon itself. Libertas, clementia, pietas, concordia, even the definition of an enemy or res publica itself. Not only the ownership of these ideas was contested, but their very meaning. So not only do we have new terms being coined in order to describe what people were experiencing, but in a very potent and powerful way, language itself was at war with itself. So Cicero, for instance, talks about res publica, the term, the idea, being a victim of civil war. For the Romans, also, the inherently transgressive nature of civil war produces and manifests itself in a network of other transgressions. The horror of war went beyond kin killing and the vulnerability of the city itself, both of which were themselves transgressive acts, but there were overt religious elements, so civil war has to be expiated and the right relationship with the gods re-established. But even more than this, human relationships and expectations about normal behaviour were perverted. So key symbols of the civil wars of the 80s, the 40s and the 30s include prescriptions in which slaves had the power to betray their owners, wives their husbands and sons their fathers. 
It includes the image of Caesar triumphing over Roman citizens, or the figure of Hortensia, an elite Roman woman, speaking out in that most male of spaces, the Roman Forum. Fulvia, Mark Antony's wife, at the head of an army, and the Battle of Forum Galorum, in which rival armies of veteran soldiers clash in total silence. There's something essentially transgressive about civil war, which in turn spawns kind of further transgressions. And finally, I kind of wanted to reflect a little bit more on this idea of the civil community being a necessary precondition for civil war. For of course, the Romans had been a civil community long before Sulla marched on Rome. There are three things which take place in this period which uh, I think have a bearing on their conception of civil community and indirectly on the narratives of civil war which the Romans would come to tell. And in a way, I'm kind of eager to hear David's views on these. So the first is the beginning of the professionalisation of the army. Sulla's great rival, Marius, is credited with beginning this transformation of the citizen militia, the, the farmer soldier, into the professional Roman army. In historical terms, this shift has been identified with civil war via a narrative which emphasises the professional soldier's increasing dependence on the commander for his pay, so a narrative about private armies. But in terms of the development of the idea of civil war or the capacity to articulate and think about it, I do wonder whether the professionalisation of the army is rather important. The second is a series of developments in Roman criminal law which are usually seen as escalating during the Sullen period. Uh, and that is the institution in some cases and the general regularisation of the criminal courts and hence the criminal law itself. Roman perceptions of criminal law centred on offences which were perceived to be threats to the res publica itself. With no state apparatus to defend the community as a whole, um, Individuals were, were tasked to sort of take upon themselves the responsibility of defending the whole community. Again, I wonder the extent to which this kind of thinking and this kind of relationship between the individual and the state helped to shape Roman notions of civil war. And finally, there is a narrative around emergency which is being rewritten during this period. This narrative focuses on the institution of the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, the ultimate decree of the Senate, not a law, but a recommendation that the magistrates take whatever measures are necessary to defend the community from an unnamed internal threat. What became very clear about this narrative was the way in which it was being used by conservative elite to define and suppress opposition. Deployed against a series of popularist politicians, including Gaius Gracchus, Saturninus, Catiline and Julius Caesar, this narrative was very much in the minds of Cicero and his contemporaries when they came to think about conflict within their community. And this really brings me to the end of what I wanted to say. Um, and, and in a way, I want my end to kind of start back where I began about, about loss. I'm very much taken with the idea and, and your persuasive idea that... Um, Civil war is an essentially contested concept. And I'm likewise taken by the idea that the experience of civil war at the end of the Republic led the Romans to reimagine and reconstruct their earlier history in order to represent civil war as fundamental and recurring. But I'm also struck by how many voices from the Republic we have lost and by the elite and very exclusionist nature of narrat the narratives that do emerge. Narratives which distinguish between, for instance, a productive struggle or conflict of the orders which gives rise to the Roman constitution and a destructive civil war. I wonder whether those members of the community who were telling stories about Remus, not Romulus, 
would have subscribed to the same narrative of civil conflict and what we might have learnt had their voices survived. Okay, so before reading this book, I would have been inclined to think of um, or to have unthinkingly, unthinkingly accepted civil war as a meta-historical concept, a description of a certain kind of conflict that occurs within almost all societies at all times. This is not, however, the understanding of civil war that the book offers. David shows us that civil war is a concept that was born of a particular experience in ancient Rome and that it then evolved through a specific European history and liter literature through to the early modern period when it then followed the paths of European empire across the globe. The book is therefore rooted in what we describe methodologically uh, as historians as ling linguistic contextualism. That is, it subscribes to the idea that the meaning of any utterance or speech act is determined by its context. Our words and the words of our historical subjects in the past only have meaning insofar as they are contained in the webs of, of significance in the circumstances in which they are or were performed. Intellectual historians borrowed this understanding of how meaning is made um, to a large degree from a philosopher, Duncan, um, Nietzsche, uh, who insisted that to the degree, as you know, um, that concepts uh, can have uh, a meaning, they obtain their meaning historically. Now, historians generally appreciate the importance of context to understanding their subjects. That is one of the most important and distinguishing virtues of history as a discipline for understanding our social and political environment. It is all the more extraordinary, therefore, how many of us continue to work with concepts in ways that are meta-historical, ignoring the very simple precepts on what makes things mean what they do. Civil war, David argues, was not a fact of nature waiting to be discovered. It was an artifact of human culture that had to be invented. Now, one of the passages in this book which compels us to pay attention to language in order to understand the meaning of events is that which describes a kind of declension of understandings of what we now call the American Revolution. When hostilities first break out with the American colonies, the famous economist Adam Smith described the problems as a social war, war a term he took from the history of Rome's war with its Italian allies, or Soki when it refused them citizenship. The American colonists themselves, prior to announcing their break with Britain, described their struggle as a civil war, what we might call, uh, as David observes, the first American civil war, because they claimed the right of equal citizens. When the American colonies decided to break with Britain, they used the eminent writer on the law of nations, Emma de Vattel, to explain that civil wars dissolve the nation creating two nations, so that the Civil War in America became an international war and thereby made it possible for the colonists to declare their independence as a nation. 
These differences in the shades of the meaning of a concept made a profound difference to how historical subjects understood what they were doing and to how we understand what they did. But this book, I argue, in demonstrating the strength of the contextual approach to a history of ideas, poses a very difficult problem for historians, particularly for historians who are interested in writing a global history of ideas, or what is now termed a global intellectual history. As globalization has come to define in many ways the world in which we live, historians, ever sensitive to the environment in which they live, some of us might say too sensitive, have begun to, have begun to write global histories and intellectual historians have followed suit. Now, the well-known um, uh, philosopher and historian Samuel Moyne and a Andrew Sertori tell us in their 2013 book, Global Intellectual History, that there are a number of ways to approach this subject. One would be to write intellectual histories of the various localities and peoples in the world. And there is nothing in David's methodology that is inconsistent with such an approach. Another would be to write comparative conceptual histories of different localities. And again, the contextual approach would work for that. Moyne and Sartori's third model, and that which they clearly prefer, is that in which we write connected histories, showing the circulation of concepts across global space. It seems to me that Armitage's methodology, he's become Armitage now, um, raises some serious problems <laughs> with writing <clears throat> a global history of political ideas in that vein. The politics of the world in which we live today and contemporary political theory is dominated by a particular lexicon of concepts, including sovereignty, the state, empire, rights, citizenship, and democracy. Now the problem, as David notes in his introduction, is that most of these concepts have their origin in Roman and Greek thought. Like civil war, they were subsequently mobilized through a particular medieval and early modern European experience before being carried across the globe through the mechanisms of empire, commerce, and capitalism. The history of these concepts and of modern political theory is far more imperial than global. To point to the European context that is necessary to make sense of these ideas is not to declare an attachment to a modernist and trickle-down model of understanding global history, as Moyne and Sartori observe in relation to an earlier book of David's on the Declarations of Independence. It is rather to provincialize such ideas, to treat them as the product of a very specific European experience and to deny their universality or their meta-historical existence. The risk of describing the central terms of the modern political lexicon as global is to minimize the history of empire and capitalism. It is, in fact, to make history a tool of our present ideals, to make history what we would like it to have been rather than to treat it as it was. Moyne and Sartori insist that a global history must, and I quote, skew toward modern histories, that is, towards a period in which interconnect interconnectedness has deepened enough to be deemed global. Well, what they describe, therefore, is a retreat from history. 
which may well be why they underestimate the role of empire and capitalism in forging global ties. What Armitage shows is how far the terms we use in the present reach into the past and how much those terms have become inscribed in the projection of European power across the globe. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. Um, Professor Armitage, if your history manifesto was a call to arms for historians to take up the gauntlet and embrace the big history challenge and thereby help to shape debates and ideas in our today, in our present, and surely your civil wars, a history in ideas, is a magisterial model of how we might do this. It is also an extraordinary study of historical agency. Your lens is not on states as actors in civil war, nor is it on communities impacted by civil war. It's not really about individuals either as they made the impossible choices while their houses divided upon themselves. Now, in my reading of your big history, the idea of civil war is the historical actor. Your narrative lens falls on the idea as it moved through time, was considered, molded, critiqued, dropped, picked up again, and then applied. You offer us a persuasive and I think truly impressive case why civil war, as opposed to other kinds of conflict and other instances of state violence, matters as a subject of the long durée. Your narrative is as broad as it is diverse, allowing the idea and all its historical baggage, or at least its Eurocentric historical baggage, to exist in our present and become a lens through which we can consider, with all due reference to nuance and context, the art of being a good, and I'd say a great historian, uh, contemporary civil wars. As a result, ancient Rome can speak to Syria today. I think your book is a truly magnificent and ambitious attempt at writing relevant history, but, there's always a but. My first response came as I read your opening sen sentence, which left me with a rather visceral response. The opening sentence, um, if you haven't read it, um, talks about our present being a present of a long peace. And my utterance at that point in time, I can't repeat here in um, uh, a polite company, my husband heard it, um, that's rubbish, I said. And that left me in a quandary what to do right now, because I think this is a truly magisterial piece of work, which you framed for our present with an idea that is almost, I would think, say, purposely controversial. You have not just made civil war controversial, but the concept of peace and war in our present uh, controversial. Because the modern post-1945 era uh, 
you claim, is one in which the wealthy West experienced a long peace, all the while watching other people's civil wars. Now, my reaction to this was visceral um, for all sorts of reasons. Because typecasting Western history since 1945 as a long piece, I think, fails to register the globalized realities of modern warfare. And you get to that point at the end, but you don't begin there. Um, so I thought, and I was thinking, my barista, my uh, long walk with the dog each day, is from Montenegro. And he was bombed in Kosovo by the Americans during what was ostensibly a civil war. My dentist, he whom I call of the perfect teeth, is a Serb who fled to New Zealand in the 1990s to escape that same war. My taxi driver, as I was being brought to the airport um, on Sunday, is from Somalia. These three men are New Zealanders. They are products and agents of civil war, and they, they do not really know a long peace. And their civil wars belong to us all, we are active agents in them. My uh, research on neutrality shows that even inactivity is a form of agency, uh, particularly in, very, uh, in times of war uh, and strife. The audience to civil war is an agent in that conflict. In the context of these experiences and our own ideas of civil war, the idea of a long peace falls flat. To take the analogy just a step further, does not really take into account that many of the post-1945 civil wars were in part the product of Western agency. Uh, they were our Cold War proxy wars, which kept the world from hurtling towards nuclear annihilation and almost, almost essential as such. So that made me, well, I was also struck by your associated claim in that first few paragraphs that the period 1648 to 1945, which is a very long period, was an era of war between states, while the post-war, post-1945 era was supposedly a war within states. And I think your broad generalizations do you no service, because the point surely is that it's always an age of civil war. There is no peculiarly civil war-prone age. For your magisterial book shows above all else that the one constant across time was the existence of war within the state, the war between the citizens. It has never not been an age, not been an age of civil war. And that reality makes your history in ideas all the more compelling. Thank you. Good evening, everybody, and uh, I'm delighted to welcome you here to uh, my law school, the Sydney Law School at the University of Sydney. We're uh, really pleased to welcome you here into our fabulous building, which also has a, a very, uh, our law school has a very long association with uh, international law and the theory and practice of, uh, of conflict. Uh, uh, international law has been taught here since the late 19th century. We're one of the few law schools in the world to have continuously taught international law for uh, well over a, a century, and some of our professors have been deeply engaged in conflict and war issues, 
uh, including Pitt Cobbett at the turn of the century and uh, later Sir Julius Stone in the 60s and onwards. James Crawford, uh, uh, now in the International Court of Justice, practiced in some of the key cases which developed uh, the modern law. Uh, so uh, I'm absolutely delighted uh, to be able to read and engage with David's book because uh, David's book, uh, of course, takes international law seriously, which is uh, not something uh, you can say of Donald Trump and certain uh, currents in uh, US legal culture uh, these days. Uh, I was delighted that you kind of traversed all of the uh, key canonical figures in international law in this area from Grotius onwards, and uh, we, we share a lot in, in common on, uh, on, on that front. Um, international lawyers in recent years have really started embracing history and, and, and uh, uh, contesting their own approach to history because I think for a long time, immersed in our own methods uh, of coming at the past, uh, we haven't so much uh, been uh, across the historical debates on, on uh, methodology and so on. So there's a lot of interest from international lawyers with uh, the history of international law and a lot of law interest by historians, including Professor uh, Sluger's project uh, at how you deal with the history of, uh, of international law. Um, uh, I, I, uh, now, as a, as a lawyer, um, I think you've been very kind to us in the book. Uh, I, I'm, I'm delighted because you, you can't always, people aren't always kind to lawyers. Um, uh, but I, I thought in the interests of uh, playing devil's advocate, I, I would take issue with some of the things you've, you've said, uh, said in the book. Get a bit defensive uh, and uh, defend the, uh, uh, the, the, the discipline. Um, uh, I've also, uh, in the spirit of good lawyering, plastered my copy with post-it notes, which is uh, basically how lawyers uh, make money. They, they charge clients for reading extensively, and uh, the longer you take, the more money you make. Um, now, the central contention of your book um, is that, uh, you know, you say definition is doomed because there's such a diversity across history of what we understand uh, to be civil war and its consequences politically, legally, and, uh, and so on. And at one point in the book you say um, definition is doomed, even if that might confuse lawyers and so on. Uh, my, my first points are, uh, 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 I think, very much on the same page with you, which is that, firstly, um, international law often deals with very ambiguous concepts precisely without defining them because it's not considered possible for political, political reasons. Uh, but nonetheless goes on to functionally regulate them in a way which generally works reasonably well. And I think later in the book when you talk about the development of international humanitarian law, you show precisely how that functional cooperation uh, has, uh, has been possible. So if you think of it, indigenous peoples, minorities, um, terrorism, I mean, all of these hard-to-define concepts, and yet international law says quite a bit about all of those things uh, and manages to, to regulate them. Uh, what I would take issue, though, um, going beyond that, is uh, this, the, this, this terminology uh, of civil war itself. I would say over, I mean, starting about 150 years ago, but particularly since the Second World War, uh, I think the short answer to all of this messiness about what is civil war, uh, the short answer for international lawyers is that civil war doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I mean, I think that's the, the, the crudest way of putting it. I say that because in international humanitarian law, which you deal with uh, at length in the book, we don't use the words civil war. We avoid it uh, very, very deliberately. And at one place in the book you say, this is, I think you say it's a, a technocratic uh, rebranding or something, something like this. 
And my key point tonight, I think, is really to say, actually, it was much more than that. It was a very deliberate, conscious strategy uh, by states in the international community precisely to avoid this terminology of civil war uh, because it was so contested and because it had uh, led to so many legal difficulties in the past uh, before the Second World War. Uh, what were those uh, difficulties? Uh, well, um, before, when we talked about... So, to start with the term war, when we talked about the term war, it implied a certain high threshold of violence, which, as you rightly point out in the book, talks about things like um, territorial control by an armed group, the existence of de facto governmental authorities, and only if you had that level of domestic unrest would you get to this threshold of war. Uh, in addition, war was typically subjective, so the government had to declare its existence. If they didn't want to admit that they no longer had control of their, their territory and their people, they'd just say, you know, we're not at war. Um, and so you could thereby evade uh, the restrictions on fighting in war uh, if you just said it didn't, it didn't exist or the violence isn't, uh, isn't quite so high enough. The modern pr approach of international humanitarian law uh, avoids all of those problems. Uh, it says uh, we, we talk about armed conflict, not war. Armed conflict can be things less than the old high threshold of war. So it's still got to be pretty intense, but it doesn't require you know, that level of territorial and de facto governmental uh, control. Uh, it's now an objective test. So you, whatever the, the state thinks is irrelevant, frankly. I mean, they may not apply the law and they may not comply in the right way. Uh, but a, a non-international armed conflict exists if uh, the violence exists, there's an organised armed group, that's the end of it. I, I mean, subjective recognition by the affected states or third states, which you deal with uh, uh, quite a bit in the book as well, uh, is, is just uh, irrelevant to the application of the law itself. Um, further, the legitimacy of the cause, the motive, whether it's political or something else, also irrelevant. It's an objective question of the intensity of the violence. Secondly, we reject the term civil. Uh, and replace it with non-international. Uh, and there, again, that's a really deliberate choice to neutralise and depoliticise the historical mess which you, you, you so effectively uh, chronicle. Um, we talk about non-international, I think, in part because, precisely because of the problems inherent in the, world, in the word civil, which assume that there is some kind of pre-existing coherent political community. And many of the, 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 the cases you illustrate uh, in the book are precisely examples of the absence of a civil community in, in that sense. Uh, so non-international conflicts these days cover, uh, cover national liberation, self-determination movements, which are hardly civil. I mean, French uh, Algerians in French Algeria fighting France, it's nothing to do with uh, the same community challenging its own political community. It's just challenging the legal labelling of that community as France by France. Uh, but it's not really a, a body politic uh, in any kind of substantive sense. Uh, secondly, um, we, we talk about, you, you talk about secessionist, sectarian, etc., um, conflicts which aren't about challenging political authority and maintaining the current state, but which are about global communism or ethnic identity or religion or resources or criminals or terrorists or drug cartels in Mexico or, or whatever, it, whatever it might be. Uh, so we avoid all of that problem by just calling it non-international, much more neutral, uh, and allows you to uh, avoid, the, avoid the politics. Okay. The third point, then, is simply um, uh, that this kind of functional relabeling or rebranding has had very substantial effects on regulating violence. Um, civil war now is treated as of international concern in really serious ways. It starts with common article three, 
1949, the Geneva Conventions, don't murder, don't torture, give a fair trial. It's a pretty basic package of protections. But then you get Protocol 2 in 1977. These days you get human rights law being superimposed on top of all of that. You get UN peacekeeping, Security Council action. Uh, in recent weeks, uh, unilateral enforcement against chemical weapons by the US and, and our mate uh, Macron in France is now subscribing to this one as well. Uh, so it's not just a te technocratic relabeling. It's something which has uh, allowed really serious functional uh, cooperation, despite all of the gaps and problems and ambiguities we know around detention, targeting, and all the things which the war on terror has preoccupied us uh, with. Uh, the fourth point is um, the other bit of international law with, with Matt, which, which matters, which I can deal with very quickly, which is we've been talking about humanitarian law, which is the rules about civilizing war once it starts. Obviously, the international law on the use of force, i.e. the prohibition against resorting to force in the first place under the UN Charter, uh, is also relevant. Uh, but here, this is where there's a massive hole you can drive a truck through in international law. Um, international law says states can defend themselves using military force against armed attacks by nasty foreign states. Uh, but there's no such right of group or collective or citizen self-defense against nasty, oppressive, authoritarian states which are destroying their human rights or committing genocide or atrocities uh, against them. The best we've got is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights preamble which says, by the way, if you don't respect human rights, you've got to expect rebellion against tyranny. But there's certainly no international legal right to rebel against your state. Uh, and no obligation, no, no right of third states to assist the rebellion against even a genocidal state, which you might raise pretty serious moral questions about in international law. At the same time, you've got a, a bit of movement here. Uh, so although civil war in this sense is mostly left to the state to suppress, including criminalising its enemies, rebels as terrorists or whatever you want to throw the book at them for, there is still increasing international regulation. So Security Council... Uh, humanitarian intervention, debates about third state intervention in civil wars, responsibility to protect, although that's a bit of a dead letter after Libya, and then of course the usual humanitarian uh, human rights protections. Uh, very last point, although I'm defending international law here and saying, you know, all of this uh, uh, rebranding has been productive, it's not just a fudge and it's not just rhetoric, at the same time, I would say, I think we are at a moment, I mean, this is a regime which has been around now for maybe 70 years, which is not a drop in the ocean historically in terms of universal regulation, not empire regulation, not domestic regulation, but truly universal international law, which has teeth in various areas. I would say both international humanitarian law and the law on the use of force uh, are now under really serious systemic challenge uh, from developments like this war on terror that you, you deal with at the end of the book, uh, the rebranding of civil war, indeed the rebranding of non-international armed conflict as just terrorism. Uh, and under that paradigm, for example, under the British and Australian definitions of terrorism, using any violence against any foreign government, regardless of your methods or means, so even if you just target the military, even if you avoid civilians, and regardless of the justice of your cause, so even if you're fighting against Hitler or some other genocidal uh, regime, that's all just criminal terrorism. Why that matters, I think, is for two reasons. One is because in the past, you know, a government could always criminalise rebels as, as, as criminals under domestic law, but the counter-terrorism paradigm, because of the Security Council, 
now leads to international or transnational criminal cooperation obligations so that we must help suppress Hitler's assassin, uh, which uh, is quite extraordinary when international law historically uh, was agnostic on that and, and, and neutral and just said, you know, foreign states deal with it, but we're not going to help you uh, suppress your own uh, enemies. The other problem is that this is really undermining international humanitarian law because it means uh, if any, you know, no matter how you fight, you're just treated as a, a terrorist and you're at the end of it shot or given a summary trial or you're locked up for a very long time, uh, why, would you, uh, why would you think about acting humanely yourself in armed conflict? So it, it radically uh, undermines uh, prospects for compliance with international humanitarian law at a time uh, when states themselves are radically undermining it. When you've got, uh, you know, the, the greatest killer in Syria is not Islamic State, it's Assad. You know, it's state forces uh, dropping barrel bombs, chemical weapons uh, on, on uh, unprotected civilians. So there's this unraveling of the humanitarian consensus begun, as you point out, in the 1860s, Geneva, um, by both the state and non-state uh, ends. Um, and uh, I don't know where this, uh, where this leads. Um, but uh, it, uh, it, it's, I think, quite a dangerous moment for uh, that humanitarian consensus. Thanks. Well, enormous thanks, uh, in particular to uh, Glenda and to Jamie Martin on behalf of the uh, Laureate uh, International Program for organizing this evening, uh, to Anna Marie and uh, everyone else uh, here at the University of Sydney for making this possible and for hosting me here. Uh, in many ways, this book is very much a Sydney book. Uh, as Glenda very kindly mentioned, uh, I think the very first attempt I made to run through uh, this many-parted argument. Uh, you've seen the responses, the remarkable responses from the interlocutors here, which show how incautious I was in moving into multiple fields simultaneously. I thought I didn't want to just get into trouble with the classicists. I didn't just want to get in trouble with the political theorists. I didn't just want to get into trouble with the international historians or the international lawyers. I wanted to bring them all on at once, and that's exactly what's happened in the most marvelous uh, and heartwarming way uh, this evening. Uh, but the possibility of bringing bringing together a group of such distinguished interlocutors is extraordinarily rare and extraordinarily valuable, especially when this book goes back through so many conversations, not least uh, and originally here at Sydney Ideas, and uh, thanks to um, Meredith uh, for helping us to put this event together, uh, to bring so many people here this evening. Uh, in a sense, to recap uh, some of the themes I talked about eight years ago, uh, but to do so when uh, I have no point of retreat any longer. The book is published, uh, I have to respond to this, it's out there as a target, um, and uh, it's uh, very much marked in important ways by the conversations I've had with colleagues and friends here at Sydney over the years. It's meant an enormous amount to me to have had a visiting position here in the history department and to engage uh, with faculty and with graduate students in many parts of the university. So uh, I'm very moved indeed to be here in Sydney to uh, discuss this. Uh, this, as uh, Ellie in particular and others will know, is what the Roman orators used to call a captatio benevolentiae, uh, that you try to butter up your audience uh, before uh, either uh, coming back on the uh, offensive against attacks or to make sure that you head them off at the pass before they start attacking you. It's too late for the latter strategy. Uh, but I do want to respond 
uh, to uh, as many of the points as I possibly can in the very short amount of time I have uh, to uh, pick up and carry forward the conversation. I, I'm a firm believer that books are never finished, they're just abandoned. Uh, you have to give them up at some point and let them go out into the world. Uh, but the more serious version of that is that books or any of our activities as academics, as intellectuals, as interlocutors are meant to spark further conversation. I would be horrified if anyone ever said about any of my books that it was definitive because that would mean the death of the topics or the arguments that I was dealing with. I want uh, to write books and to interject arguments which are going to open up other arguments, bring other people into the discussion, make the ideas better, stronger, broader, more relevant to more people, including a wonderful public audience like we have here this evening. And I could not have wished for more uh, from the uh, responses from, from my friends and colleagues this evening. Um, I just want to repurpose a, a, a sentence I love from the beginning of a recent work of the history of science. Um, and this is picking up on one of Ben's last remarks. Uh, there is no such thing as civil war, and this is a book about it. War, uh, as Ben knows, it's not just civil war which has disappeared, it's actually war which has disappeared. War has disappeared since 1945 gradually as uh, a legal category for all of the reasons that Ben was talking about, and civil war has, in a sense, disappeared with that. If you talk to um, lawyers who have been engaged in contemporary armed conflict, uh, they will tell you, as, as Ben was uh, giving attestation a moment ago, uh, that uh, any words will be used to describe contestation, armed contestation between multiple parties, except for war. You might talk about operations, you might talk about counterinsurgency, you would talk in these uh, uh, broader terms of armed conflict and ultimately non-international non armed conflict in relation to what in vernacular terms we would call civil war. And that's what I'm interested in. That was one of the many things I was interested in in the book, is the collision between popular general understandings, as it were, what you or I, if I take off my academic hat for the moment, would call a civil war when we see what's going on on the ground in a place like Syria, we reach naturally in many languages, certainly in English, but in many other languages, for the term civil war to describe that. As it were, we know it when we see it. Um, it's a vernacular language, but it then collides with more specialized languages, the language of professionals in international organizations, non-governmental organizations, among academics, among political scientists, among uh, lawyers as well. And I'm interested in that gap because in some cases, people can die in that gap. Uh, the misunderstanding or the collision of understandings about what or is or is not a conflict, an armed conflict, a non-international armed conflict, a civil war, can have real-world consequences for real people in real time uh, in very destructive conflicts around the world. And that's kind of the serious heart of my turn towards language. It's not just that, I believe, and I state this in the book, that the way in which we talk about the world with each other is primarily through language. And so to examine language, especially as an historian, is to understand fundamental ways in which we understand our world for ourselves, but we also talk about it with others to persuade them to our own point of view, to argue about what's going on, to try to uh, either meld our worldviews or to agree to disagree. On a large scale, on a more than interpersonal scale, we call that negotiation politics. 
politics, if we want a, a meta-historical definition uh, to, take, um, uh, to take Andrew Fitzmaurice's term for these concepts. Politics is about uh, the management of difference over um, values to which we have fundamental attachments, but sometimes we're so fundamentally attached to those values that our conflict about the application of those values and the selection of those values um, can lead up to the point of conflict, up to the point even of armed conflict, but not beyond it. And I think if we want, again, a very broad definition of politics as the avoidance of civil war, this is coming back to, to Duncan's opening Foucauldian point, that uh, uh, civil war increasingly around the world, I say this as someone coming from the United States at the moment, looks like civil war by other means. That that consensus that politics is about the managing of difference up to but not beyond the point of violence, including verbal violence but also physical violence, is being radically tested right here, right now in our current situation where we have politicians like the man whose name I will not speak, but I ask you to think of a, a large bouffant orange asteroid so you can have a picture of this, this monstrous person in your mind, uh, a politician who deliberately incites physical violence, who deliberately uses verbal violence, who is deliberately tearing at the very fabric of de democratic politics to allow the fissures and the tears to allow violence itself back into the democratic sphere. And I think that's a huge worry at the moment. There, there's evidence of this in other parts of the world, particularly in, in Europe at the moment as well. And it's made my book uh, on, on the language of civil war much more timely than I ever wanted it to be. Uh, I did not want it to be quite so au courant of the moment relevant to our contemporary dilemmas. Uh, except, I thought originally, in the international sphere. And just to pick up one, one of Marty's very important points, um, those opening pages of the book where I do talk about a supposed long peace since 1945, uh, the at least statistical de decline of conflicts between states, um, according to some of the standard criteria, there's only one conflict currently going on between two states in the sense of states members of the United Nations, recognized territorial states, and that's between Pakistan and India over Kashmir. That's, of course, a very different situation from most of uh, world history since at least the 17th century, if not before, where we've seen this secular decline in, uh, the f uh, in warfare between, or conflict, we should say, between states. De uh, states don't de declare war anymore. They don't conclude them by peace treaties. Most of the, uh, the formal indexes of interstate war have disappeared and that's one of the reasons why uh, interstate war has disappeared. But still, there is enormous amount, an enormous amount of conflict around the world, and that conflict is what we call non-international armed conflict or civil war because it takes place within, but not solely within, the boundaries of those uh, states uh, that, that many of the speakers have alluded to. So the world is still a very bloody, a very conflict-ridden place, uh, but it's generally not as a result of conflicts between states, but those within them which often either leak outside the boundaries of states themselves. Again, think of Syria, which has effectively been turned inside out, with more than half of its population displaced internally and externally, and conflicts which draw in outside powers, either neighboring powers, think of something like Rwanda, or distant outside powers, think of, say, Iraq or Afghanistan drawing in uh, the US and other powers. So almost all civil wars, so-called, 
today are internationalized. They're not within the boundaries of a single state. So the world is still a very bloody place, but it's not a bloody place because of the conflict between states themselves. So I was ventriloquizing um, uh, a general understanding about a quote's long piece while being very skeptical about it. So that was kind of reported speech about what political scientists tell us about this, which then I undermine with uh, the knowledge of uh, increasing conflict of, of various kinds today. In order to understand this, though, uh, I felt it imperative in writing the book and constructing it uh, to track backwards sequentially to understand exactly how we got to the point where we can have a discussion like this, which where although the language of civil war has disappeared from various kinds of professional discourse, which are designed to uh, adjudicate, to ameliorate, perhaps even ultimately to terminate forms of civil conflict on the one hand, and yet the language of civil war is still very much with us, being applied and also contested, maybe not essentially contested, but perpetually contested around particular conflicts uh, in Iraq, uh, in Libya, and also in Syria, and I give examples of the contestation around each of those conflicts in the book. This language is still very much contested uh, at the moment. It's not susceptible to a final definition which would prevent that contestation, even if we could come up with a consensual definition uh, of civil war, there would still be contestation about the application of that definition. So perhaps not essentially contested, to come back to Duncan's point, but certainly perpetually uh, contested. And I think it be behooves historians of language in particular to ask, well, how did we get to that point? What are the reasons for that? What are the sedimented conceptions, arguments, forms of ideas about these forms of conflict which we have inherited, which come into collision, often political and ideological collision, as well as with legal consequences and humanitarian consequences. Where did they come from? Uh, how have we inherited them? How, in some sense, does that language speak through us in our discussions of and arguments about these forms of contemporary conflict? And I think that idea is of a sense, language being at war with itself, I think that was what Ellie said from, from the, uh, the Roman conceptions, uh, remains almost a trans-historical phenomenon that language itself uh, leads to conflict about application as well as definition. There may be attempts, uh, quite rigorous attempts, for instance, by the international legal community to sidestep that by adopting a more antiseptic and neutral language, uh, which then leads to its own, um, uh, own uh, contestations about when that should be applied and where it should not be applied. Uh, and these arguments uh, continue uh, partly because of the investments that different sides have in the conflict. I love, loved Ellie's idea about the lost voice of the supporters of Remus, the, the slain brother at the very foundation of Rome. If we, if we had the, uh, the suppressed voices, the oppositional voices, what would we hear? I suspect we would hear even more contestation about the understandings of these conflicts. I think we would hear even more uh, intense metaphorical battles as well as political and ideological battles uh, about these as well. Uh, and we would also hear, I think, more ways in which uh, the language of civil war has overflowed the description of particular kinds of conflict within a political community uh, to uh, denominate different sorts of conflict. So I've been collecting over the last few months just examples of the way in which the language of civil war has seeped into political discourse in Europe and 
America. Just after the Brexit vote, the Conservative Party in the UK was said to be at civil war with itself. The Labour Party in the UK has been said to be at perpetual civil war since the election of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, there was a civil war within the Republican Party in the US over the nomination to the presidency after the pres presidential election uh, 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 came, came to an end. Then there was uh, continuing civil war within ultimately the White House about different factions fighting for each other. We've, uh, there have been headlines even in the last 10 days or so of the president wading into various civil wars over different attitude, diff different aspects of his agenda in the US and one could go on with language from France after the Bataclan attacks from the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff in Brazil and on and on and on. Uh, it's not unique that we have this ramping up of the language of civil war but I think it is disturbing that we have this. It may be a sign of that leakage of violence, that leakage of, con con uh, of extreme contestation in our politics, which we should be concerned about. I, don't, I, uh, I obviously want to hear much more from everybody here in the audience, but I wanted to end with um, one question which brings us back to Australia in particular and brings us back indeed to the very point at which uh, Anna Marie uh, began. That is the relationship between the settler colonial population in a settler colonial state like Australia and um, uh, the indigenous people of Australia. Uh, and I think at this particular moment after the Uluru Declaration, um, it's very much on all of our minds to think about the nature of the social contract between the different populations that occupy and contest the occupation of this land as well as their place within a polity that occupies this territory. And I just wanted to leave as a perhaps a challenging thought that the question, when would it become possible under what conditions here in Australia would it become possible for all sides to recognize that the settler wars against Aboriginal peoples from 1788 onwards were in fact civil wars? I'll just let that resonate for a second. One way in which that I think would be significant would be picking up a thread that I stressed throughout the book that to call a war civil is to recognize the party against which you are fighting as a member of the same community. That's not a reassuring thought in relation to conventional civil wars. That realization often comes at the point of a sword or down the barrel of a gun. A civil war in literal Roman sense is a war against fellow citizens. It's an acknowledgement of commonality at the moment of the breakdown of that commonality into the most intense, destructive, often fratricidal form of conflict. If at some point in the near or distant future within Australia, a general recognition were possible that the frontier wars, wars with, with, between Aboriginals and settlers were civil wars that would both recognize the intimate horror of those wars within the continent of Australia, but also crucially it would recognize the commonality and the common citizenship of all members of the Australian polity within this territory and on this continent. So I just put that before you, that would it be in some sense a kind of uh, an ethical victory to recognize, for all communities to recognize that civil war has taken place on the land of Australia, Many of the conversations I've had here over the years have had white Australians saying to me, well, of course, we've never had a civil war here, so how is your theme relevant? I want to turn that around and say, 
maybe there has been perpetual civil war from 1788 onwards here on the soil of Australia, and that a recognition of that would be an important recognition of that commonality on this stolen land uh, of the nature of a conflict which was both intimate and full of enmity but based ultimately on commonality and common citizenship. So I'll leave you with that. I look forward very much to uh, further responses uh, and uh, discussions. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm just touching on uh, what you finished with, with the Civil War and, and things like that in Australia. Ooh. It was a thought that I had a while ago wondering what what, assuming that Australia was settled versus invaded, those sort of arguments, things like that, what people think would have happened to Australia if it hadn't been settled or invaded by England? Um, do people just assume it would have existed in some sort of, for lack, very lack of a better term, and please excuse me, Jurassic Park situation where the rest of the world moves on and advances and this perfect, pristine, untouched by civilization just goes on and we don't touch it kind of situation or what I came to in my head was multiple settlements by different European nations ending in a kind of divided country like Africa which given the context of World War II seeing the colonies broken up and going to the Nazis and things like that may have just ended in a like a, a similar state I guess that Africa is in the moment a bit more cut up I guess. I don't know if there's a question there I could actually put into it, but what, what do people, I guess, think would have happened if, 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 the, if the situation didn't occur or as it did? Do any of the Australians want to take up the counterfactual? <laughs> um, thank you, Duncan. That's uh, <laughs> an interesting question to be asked to answer. I um, have always been uh, deeply sceptical of hypothetical history, um, but I'll play the game on this occasion. Uh, the, uh, I, I mean, the way I would look to answer that question would then be to try to find comparable situations in history. Uh, and I suppose the first place I'd look is not too far afield um, to perhaps uh, the Pacific Islands and, and look at how those islands uh, that remained relatively unscathed by European um, uh, contact uh, fared uh, in the long term. Uh, to look at the degree to which their sovereignty has been respected, uh, the degree to which they have um, managed to flourish as, um, as societies. Yeah, uh, thanks, Glenda. Um, David, I just wanted to take up your challenge very quickly, the, the question you posed about civil war, which is, and this brings me to a critique I wanted to make of your book, which I, I didn't get time to make, and that is um, that, uh, you, you know, the, the power to claim or classify something as a civil war is, a, is an act of power of whoever is the state or the hegemon or in a position to, you know, uh, tell, tell people um, what the situation they face is. And in your book, I, I wasn't clear on whether you were... Uh, just saying this is a bunch of stuff other people have called civil war or whether you were taking some kind of critical or normative position on what ought to be or not be called civil war. So the example you give of Australia is a great one because for me that, that's in the category of a whole bunch of places which were colonised, uh, which uh, 
enjoyed the right of self-determination because they became independent states, and that is under international law. The conventional view is that's the whole population of a colonial, colonised territory, even if they're you know majority white people or whatever. Um, and so you have this really messy situation where international law says you you know the, the post-colonial boundaries must be respected mm -hmm. and, and be stable under a, under a certain principle. Uh, so you can't internally you know disassemble states which have achieved independence, even if their boundaries were utterly fictitious based on the post-colonial settlement, even if they lumped together a whole bunch of disparate tribes, groups, peoples, Africa, Asia, I mean, you know the, you know the story. Um, uh, and yet, because that's now under the paradigm of international law, it's the state, the state gets to call things as civil war or not, suddenly we treat all of those things as civil war. So the Australia example, I, would, I wouldn't see as civil war in a million years. I mean, maybe at a point, you know, after they were accepted as citizens with full equality and whatever, then there's violence, yeah. outbreak. Yes, of course, civil war. But at the time, I mean, it's, it's not interstate war because... You know, they're outside the, 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 the Westphalian state system of international law. They're just indigenous people doing their own thing in a continent which hasn't been touched by international law. Yet we get here, impose these rules, uh, and so it's, it's, it's neither civil war nor international law. It's just sui generis. I mean, it's, it's just indigenous people fighting people coming from elsewhere. But it, I, I can't see how it would fit within the civil war paradigm unless you're making a claim that um, the white people who colonise get to call the shots, define who is the political community and therefore who is rebelling against that authority. That just makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so maybe if you could clarify that, that broader point mm -hmm. about what is your book doing? Is, it, is mm -hmm. it descriptive or is it taking a position on those issues? Yeah, if you want to leap, leap on that, I think I know what you're going to say because I'm probably going to say something similar, but go ahead. <laughs> so that would give us a... I mean, to take up your linguistic sensitivity, that mm. would give us a post-67 um, application of the mm -hmm. term. Mm -hmm. Or, um, I mean, uh, you know the early cases for New South Wales uh, in terms of jurisdiction. The alternative would be to mm -hmm. say, we, we know until the 1830s, courts in New South Wales ruled that Aboriginal people were outside of British jurisdiction, therefore that's international. And they talked mm -hmm. about those people as separate mm -hmm. nations. Mm -hmm. Um, from that moment, they included um, Aboriginal people within British jurisdiction, mm -hmm. um, but um, but in not recognising them as citizens, and because you say to have a civil war, you must have citizens. Well, we have a, a very long period of um, something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that that um, that periodisation. I, I think I would, yeah, I would want to uh, insist that uh, the the Westphalian state is a myth. Uh, and I, I tend to recoil from the use of the, the back projection of, of that term. I went to Westphalia last year and had dinner with a group of historians and political scientists and said to them, what does Westphalian mean to you? Thinking they would talk about Weberian territorial sovereignty and boundedness. And they said, ah, it is our Westfalische Pickert. It is a delicious potato pancake. You must have some. It is so enjoyable. Uh, that, that, the, not the state, the pancake. Uh, so, uh, but I, I think that the, the world is much more fluid, as, as Andrew points out. That up to the, up precisely up to the 1830s, um, uh, contentions among ab, uh, Aboriginal peoples themselves in, in New South Wales are treated as if they're under the jus gentium or the law of nations, rather than uh, uh, something which is lawless or outside law or prior to law in, in some sense, and only then later uh, taken under British jurisdiction. So that that boundary drawing, that boundary crossing. Um, uh, coming back to who has the power to define, I think, is uh, tremendously important. And a language of war 
uh, instinct in the European understandings of the law of nations, which they then apply to their understanding of conflict within and uh, between, abori uh, between abor aboriginals and the incomers, I think is the uh, very much the framework. It's, it's a framework on the one hand of conflict seen as war, but also conflict determined and ended by diplomacy as well. So I don't think it's, in, it's inappropriate to, uh, to, to use that language of war, which would have been at least from the early modern period onwards for European settlers in uh, places like Aust um, Australia or New South Wales originally entirely uh, appropriate as a legal category, uh, um, uh, an ontological category to describe conflict within and between the different communities at the time. The question would be whether it could be retrospectively rebranded to include Aboriginal peoples down the generations, as it were, as co-members of a single community within this territory, within the territory of this island continent, in the way that some, someone like Henry Reynolds has reimagine the frontier wars as wars uh, in the context of the largest celebration of warfare in Australian history to unsettle the celebration of, of that and to think about continuous warfare of various kinds from the late 18th century onwards is going on within uh, this territory. But I think that's important. But to, to come back to Ben's point, I, I didn't feel I had a normative uh, recommendation, for example, for a better definition or for better protocols for the application of civil war, but I did want to get different communities, not least of practitioners, to think, um, uh, to respond exactly in the way that I, uh, I was very pleased in the way which brought out the importance of non-international armed conflict and the, uh, the, the absence of the language of not just civil war, but of war itself um, in um, uh, a larger legal and therefore also political discourse as well, because that does help us to think about the way in which different communities talking about the same conflict have a different normative framework for doing so. I was trying to bring to a bit more consciousness the consequences of those different normative frameworks colliding and in some sense being uh, if not incomprehensible to each other, at least demanding a great deal of negotiation between those on the ground who are suffering conflict and those who are tasked with uh, trying to um, adjudicate or to ameliorate it, for, for instance. And I, uh, that's something which is not always evident in each of the individual literatures that I dealt with, but I hope to open up that dialogue might lead to some normative reflection among different communities who are engaged in or find themselves necessarily having to use these particular forms of language. But this is, this is where I make the ultimate cop out and say, I'm just a humble historian. I'm just observing what's going on. It's not my job to come and cle clean up the mess that others, others have left. Uh, but at the very least, I can, I can start an argument about, about this so that others may want to be more conscious about the language that they're using. Okay, we have uh, two questions that mm. yeah, uh, thank, thank you for your discussion. Yeah. Uh, just I wonder if you may comment on the concept that the civil war is really a contestation of ideas for the future. Mm. So, uh, of course, we've been discussing about history, mm. but the, the essence, maybe, of civil war is a contestation of different groups who have mm -hmm. different ideas about the future, mm -hmm. and uh, they use um, conflict to mm -hmm. uh, contest uh, mm -hmm. their ideas. So maybe the challenge for history is how can we you uh, learn from history mm -hmm. to address the, the, this issue about the future. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure, you want to take them at, uh, all at once? Ooh. Okay. Um, 
I notice you were kind of dismissive of Westphalian uh, sovereignty, which uh, I suppose a lot of international law is dependent on, and the United Nations runs on that, I suppose. But uh, which you know kind of worries me, you know, might being right and uh, R2P, you know, uh, mm-hmm. responsibility to protect and so forth. I wanted to more, uh, talk more about, and, and also the fact that um, I think just recently uh, Manuel Noriega died, um, mm-hmm. and there was an invasion of Panama, and uh, I think we all, uh, NATO was involved in uh, Libya and uh, helping out the LIFG, which then you know caused that supposedly the Manchester thing that uh, happened recently. If, uh, if you believe that line of thought. Yeah. Now, um, I, and, and so, you know, the whole notion of that, uh, the only conflict since 45 was, well, the existing conflict uh, between cash, uh, between uh, India and Pakistan over Kashmir, I kind of, I think there's, there've been more conflicts than just that. But, um, no, I'm, I'm talking about actually going on right now. Yeah, there have been uh, many more conflicts than that, obviously. But I mean, but right you know, now, I- yeah. Iraq and uh, mm-hmm. Afghanistan and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, I wanted to ask you in terms of civil wars, I mean, I kind of agree with you in terms of civil wars being uh, not really, really confined to the, uh, the confines of a border of a sovereign state, that, that it sort of uh, leaks out, as you put it, uh, uh, into the, 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 the biggest sphere, the, the global sphere. And how much do you think um, civil wars are a product of um, outside forces as opposed to internal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, atheism, tribalism, and all that sort of stuff? I mean, what's your opinion on that? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you can mention Syria if you want. Right, right. Uh, well, I, uh, again, my, I, I'm an intellectual historian, not, um, not, not a historian of Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan, for instance, so I, I, I will leave to others to discuss um, the causation of those, the multiple causations of those wars. I write a bit in the book about um, the ways in which those forms of causation have been conceived and the, the implications, for instance, of a reaching immediately for uh, the language of ethnicity or race or tribalism in relation to civil war, um, how that often renders uh, essentially political conflicts intractably um, ethnic or atavistic. So I think to be very careful about using those uh, uh, those 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 optics, those those uh, means of understanding. But um, coming back to the first question and linking it up, I think that idea of civil war being about the future is very suggestive, especially if you think about this civil wars as often about um, collisions, not just about authority or control, uh, but about the particular um, ideological or sometimes religious makeup of a community, about um, the resources, great deal of correlation in modern civil wars, post-1989 post civil wars, between natural resources like diamonds, oil, and gas, for instance, and the incidence of civil war, resource wars emerging out of that. I think as we think about the uh, contested future that we're part of now, uh, the continuing impact of climate change, the, uh, the worry now about the Paris Climate Accords and their viability as a result of president whose name shall not be spoken withdrawing uh, from that will lead to more resource wars and therefore potentially to more civil wars as well, more contestation about the future. But something that every civil warrior or every civil warring group has to remember is that the, the future of conflict as a result of civil wars is often much longer, much more painful 
much more intractable and much more difficult to heal than the wounds of other kinds of conflict. And that's something the Romans knew. It's something that's been repeated over time. It's something that uh, uh, talked talk to uh, all of the, uh, the, the, the people who Martia met, mentioned, uh, those, those who fled from the Balkan Wars or civil wars in Africa uh, in recent years will, uh, will, will also tell you that uh, uh, the wounds of civil war go deeper, last longer, impact the future for uh, a great deal longer than the, uh, the wounds of any other kind of conflict. Uh, and so that's something that always has to be borne in mind. If any of you are thinking of entering into a civil war, think about the long-term consequences for it. But let's, let's hope not anyway. That's very good advice to end on. So thank you very much for uh, uh, coming on this evening. I thank you to all the panelists as well to Meredith Hall of Sydney Ideas for organising the event. And I think you have a chance to chat to David uh, in a minute. Uh, he'll be over at the back of the room signing copies of the book if you'd like to buy one. You can also bother him about um, anything he said tonight, I think. Mm -hmm. I think you've earned that. All right, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.